Welcome to the Gutenberg Podcast, where we discuss the major works and ideas that help shape Western culture with the faculty of Gutenberg College. I'm your host, Gil Greco. Today, my guest is Naomi Reinhold. Naomi is a new tutor at Gutenberg. She's currently teaching Greek. And like most tutors, she is also leading the Western Civ discussions. Welcome to the show, Naomi. Thanks, Gil. Good to be here. On the last episode, we talked about the Epic of Gilgamesh and talked about some of the similarities and differences between polytheism and the God described in the Bible. Today, you're going to be pulling on that thread a little more. So where should we begin? Well, I was thinking we'd start with polytheism, uh, specifically polytheism in Mesopotamia, Egypt, and Greece. You've already, as you mentioned, seen the Epic of Gilgamesh, which is set in Mesopotamia. We're going to look a little bit at the Egyptian gods and how things changed over uh, several thousand years, and also some of the Greek gods. All of these groups, the time frame we're looking at, uh, is generally accepted to begin around 3000 BC. So this is a pretty ancient belief system and also a long-lasting one because uh, these cultures were still polytheistic for the most part all the way up into uh, the time of Christ and beyond. So before we sort of dive into the specifics, could you talk a little bit about the the texts that students read at Gutenberg that are related to this idea of polytheism and sort of why we study polytheism in general? Well, I suppose one reason we would study polytheism is because in studying Western civilization, we need the backdrop and that goes back into polytheism. We don't come upon actual monotheism uh, in almost any place uh, at all in the ancient times. And uh, even when we do it, it does eventually become a widespread phenomenon. That's not until uh, after the time of Christ. At Gutenberg, we start off with the Epic of Gilgamesh and the Enuma Elish from Mesopotamia. We read a great deal of Greek, uh, the philosophy, the history, the dramas. So Homer for the epics, Hesiod um, for stories about how the world started, what the gods were up to. Um, we learn about life in ancient Greece from him as well. Herodotus and Thucydides, who are his historians. And of course, the three famous ancient Greek philosophers, Socrates, Plato, and Aristotle. Learning about the way these people thought sets the tone for Western civilization. It gives us the themes that we trace over the, the centuries, uh, the works we read. If we don't have a background in polytheism in the way that that impacted their thinking, we're really missing a really big part of their worldview because all of these ancients and the ancient cultures were highly religious and one cannot understand their culture or their politics and even to some extent things like their agriculture and their economies without understanding this very fundamental aspect of uh, the way they saw the world, which is to say a world full of many gods and many powers. And when we look back on these things, um, 
some of the questions uh, that we, we can ask starting here and moving forward uh, through the rest of Western civilization are things uh, like what's, what is human nature? Like, is it, is it plastic? Is it malleable? Is it stable? What stays the same in different contexts over time and different cultures and what changes? One way we can figure that out is by looking to the works of these ancients and seeing what they thought about themselves and the world and then just following along through the rest of the centuries and you begin to notice patterns. So one of the striking things you find when you read this ancient literature is just how different the concept of a deity or God is in the pagan world from a Christian perspective, and yet how similar these, even even across this sort of wide span of time from the Mesopotamians to the Greeks and even to the Romans, they're, they're very similar to each other in terms of sort of the general idea of polytheism. Could you talk about the nature of gods as all these different ancient people sort of saw them? Sure. You've kind of put your finger on one of the, the main things I wanted to address today, which is to say the nature of the gods for the ancients. And you're entirely right. There's a great deal in common among these cultures, which are otherwise rather different from each other. And a great deal of those commonalities come from a common understanding of the nature of their gods. So with, the, with ancient polytheism, we have an odd dichotomy. On the one hand, the gods are impersonal forces, things like the sea and earthquakes, lightning, the sun, love, justice, war. On the other hand, they're transcendent persons, which is to say really big, really powerful, and generally not accessible physically. How can gods be both of those at the same time? Well, the cultures did answer this a little bit differently here and there. And I suppose one answer may be that in any given culture, some people understood the gods one way to be mostly impersonal forces and other people understood them to be mostly persons. But what is clear from reading the texts where these gods come up is that they have these two aspects. And people like Homer, when he's writing in the Iliad and the Odyssey, don't seem to see any, any conflict between these two conceptions of the gods. Your life is shaped by forces you can't control. And to the extent that those forces are things like gravity and the sun, they seem pretty impersonal. But on the other hand, most of the things that impact our lives are not as simple as gravity and the sun. They tend to be pretty complicated. And once they hit a certain level of complexity, they're unpredictable. And one might even say capricious. And you need to be a person to be capricious. So there's a way in which it, it makes sense that they would think that these gods, that these forces that affected their lives, that shaped the externalities of how they experienced the world and what happened to them, that they would think that those would be persons. I suppose another thing to bring up is 
the nature of the transcendence of these gods. I said they were transcendent persons, but this mainly means that while part of the world as a whole, they have power over it. And as I mentioned, they're not accessible to humans for the most part. Do you think part of the reason why the there's sort of these these sort of competing sort of pictures of the gods sort of these impersonal forces versus these transcendent persons and part of that part of that has to do with the difference between sort of educated people maybe it's a class thing maybe it's a, a hierarchical thing like if you have kings and priests who are sort of directing the lives of people they're going to have a particular view of things whereas the sort of common people are going to have sort of this other view do you think that's at all part of why they sort of had this these sort of competing sort of pictures of things i imagine that would be part of it although oddly i don't think you can conclusively draw a line and say people of this class would necessarily believe the gods were impersonal forces and people of this class would necessarily believe the other way and not the opposite. So it is to say, um, it might be that the priest who goes to the temple and he takes the food for the god to eat and he puts it out there and he comes back in the morning and the food's there so he takes it home and eats it himself. Does that make him cynical? Maybe. I mean, they had explanations for it. But what if you're the king? And of course, the priests are doing a great deal of the ruling as well. They're, they're part of the government or whatever. If you're the king and you're a direct represent representative or representation of a god, which is kind of how they saw it, you either have to be really cynical or you have to take that seriously. And that seems more of a question of the personal inclinations, perhaps the character of the person on the throne, rather than something one could necessarily predict. So there are points where you have sort of heroic figures interacting with the gods. I think we mentioned in our last podcast, there's a incident in Gilgamesh where I believe it's Ishtar, the goddess of love, sends the bull of heaven against Gilgamesh and Enkidu, and Enkidu rips off the bull of heaven's leg and throws it at Ishtar. So there's, you know, they can clearly interact. There are some instances in Homer where the gods show up and the people are sort of interacting with them. Diomedes stabs Aphrodite at one point, and that's sort of a big deal. So... Do you think this is sort of an, an exceptional sort of literary way of the gods interacting with the world? Or do you think that's kind of the norm? How did they sort of see gods interacting with the world? I think that in all the cases I can think of, just like thinking right now, when the gods interact in the world as if they were human or superhuman or bodily in any case, this is sort of a choice they make. They don't, they can't be forced to do this by anyone other than maybe a god that's higher than them. But you get, even in some of the cultures that we're not talking about, so in Norse mythology, Odin would take, I think he went with Loki a couple times. They'd go and they'd, they'd hitch up their goats to a cart and they'd like go around the neighborhood and mm -hmm. like check out who was hospitable and who wasn't. Mm -hmm. And they'd eat the food and they'd chat up the, the neighbors and all that sort of thing. And it wasn't that those people could have gone out of their house and hitched up their goats to a cart and gone and visited where Odin and Loki were living. 
Like it doesn't go that direction. Yeah. I think in the Norse mythology and the Greek mythology where you have, for example, Athena visiting Telemachus, who's Odysseus's son and playing a big role being visible and bodily as far as we know. Like all of those are the gods coming down to earth. You'll get some people who act as though the gods are always embodied. They just live in a different place. And you'll get people who are like, oh no, they have a different kind of body when they're living at home. And they, they take on this sort of human form. Or if you're Zeus, maybe the form of a bull or rain shower <laughs> or whatever else when you're, when you're going visiting. Right. So, uh, so there are particular stories where the gods are sort of embodied and, and are visiting people and interacting. And, and that seems to, you know, have, like you were saying, we can't just walk over to Mount Olympus and sort of find, you know, wherever they are, there's, they're separate in, in some sense. So aside from those stories, aside from the sort of gods coming down and interacting with people, how did people sort of see the gods just interacting with reality in general? You know, I guess I'm asking about the more impersonal force side of things. What does that picture look like? Well, it seems to me it was pretty mysterious for most people. And there was a lot of disagreement because of the mysterious nature of the, the metaphysics of it, like how, ex or maybe the mechanics, how exactly did that work? What they did take to be the case, though, was that these gods each had a domain over which they had power. And by a domain, it could be, and often was, both a particular geographical area, usually in, Greek, in Greece centered around a city-state or in Mesopotamia centered around a city in the outlying regions. Um, in Egypt, it was mostly just upper or lower Egypt. They weren't quite as localized. But they would have a domain in that sense, but they'd also have a domain of nature, I suppose you could say, where they, they held sway. So a really small god might have domain over a river. And someone like Zeus technically kind of has a domain over everything, although he has areas of specialization and he kind of farms out or sub subcontracts with a bunch of the other gods. So I'm not... I'm not inclined to think that they had a very firm picture of how that worked, but they were very clear on the idea that if you wanted your crops to get the rain at the right time and the sun at the right time and for the spring not to be cold and wet and for the sunshine or the, the summer sunshine to come at the right time, then you really need to start talking to some gods probably Zeus generally, but also Persephone, if you're in, in Greece, or uh, any number of the gods in Egypt were agricultural gods. And if you didn't make nice with those gods, then your crops were just going to die. That's just how it was going to go. Even if your neighbors did well, was kind of the way they felt about it. So they definitely, definitely believed that the gods had direct and very close to complete control, if you take them all together, over the world as it impinged on their lives. So speaking of the the sort of areas that the gods control, we're both fans of Terry Pratchett. Oh, yes. And Terry Pratchett constantly has gods who are sort of gods of very sort of unimportant things. But it seems like uh, the, the gods of the ancient world 
aren't sort of the guy, you know, like the other sock is one of the, you know, he's like, where's my other sock? You know, there's a, there's a God for that, which is funny as, as sort of a joke, but it seems like the ancient conception of, of what these gods were in charge of are all sort of things that impinge on your life. Like you were saying that there are these things that can come along and just wreck your life. If they're sort of not in, you know, just sort of just so right. Um, the weather is huge. Crops are huge. You know, war is super destructive. Love is really destructive. You know, if these things don't go just quite right, then those things can end up being really destructive. And it seems like there's there's like an order that needs to be in place in order for, you know, your crops and your love life and, you know, your village not to be destroyed by uh, bad weather or war or whatever. Could you talk about how those ideas of order and chaos sort of informed the way that the gods were sort of dealing with reality and kind of what their role was in sort of mitigating chaos or how do human beings sort of relate to that and how can they hope not to be sort of destroyed by this stuff? Sure. So there's two ways that chaos and unpredictability can come into your life for the ancient polytheists. One is the gods are fighting with each other and that screws stuff up. And well, I guess the gods could also be against you. So one way chaos can come into your life is through the gods. But they also understood the basic nature of reality to be chaotic. On some tellings, and I think this is Hesiod's take, chaos is actually the first god. He's before all the other gods. And what gods come after chaos? Well, you have things like darkness and the abyss. And then you get the earth, and then you get the sky, and then things get going. Well, the earth and the sky, those are categories. They're divisions, they're logical divisions. One way you can see the gods is as new categories of being. And what is a set of categories of being other than a kind of orderliness? So one way that chaos can come into your life is through the gods. But the other way chaos comes into your life is in a sort of universal way because the universe just is chaotic. What pushes the chaos back? This orderly system that turns out to be entirely made up of the gods. Now, do the gods themselves become that orderly system or do they force an orderly system upon the world? Well, this kind of comes to the same sort of question as, are they impersonal forces or transcendent persons? As impersonal forces, they are the order foisted upon the chaotic universe. As transcendent persons, they get their nets and their bows and their spears and they go beat up chaos and take him out and then, they've, then they like force order, things are gonna go according to plan or at least according to the best I can manage. And so for a person, they're looking on possible sources of chaos, disruption, and death in their life. What do you need to do? Well, one, you need the gods to keep forcing order onto a chaotic universe. In fact, our word cosmos or cosmos that we use interchangeably with universe is just the Greek word for order. Cosmos and chaos 
are opposites. So when the gods make a cosmos, they're, they're forcing order onto this chaos. So as you were saying, Gaia, the earth, and then uh, Uranus, who's the sky, these are sort of basic categorizations of, of the universe, right? That's right. There's, there's differentiation there. And then one of their children is Kronos, which is time. But then he's bad, right? Or turns out to be sort of tyrannical. Eats his have, children. Yes. Right. And so then you have Zeus. And Zeus is like more specific mm-hmm. than just time. Besides sort of these general things that the gods are in charge of, all these gods are sort of organized into families. As I as I was just mentioning, Kronos is Zeus's father. Zeus ends up being the father of a bunch of other sort of Greek gods. And the same is true of, you know, the, the Babylonian and Sumerian pantheons and the Egyptian pantheons. Why do you think, what do you think that meant for the the pantheons to sort of be ordered into families? Um, why do you think that that was sort of an important way for the ancient peoples to organize um, how they were thinking about the world in that way? Well, families were a familiar power structure. So it was really easy for the ancients to look at the gods as father, son, father, son going on down, which one has the most power, who inherited what from whom, that kind of thing. And all of the the ancients had stories like this. Interestingly, these stories tended to change over time. So who was related to who and how? Fast forward 500 years, there may be a different answer. Who was God of what? Same story. Although, for example, in Egypt, there was always a God of the sun. Usually, he was also the God of kingship and had been a pharaoh at some time. So these things were connected in Egypt. Another way in which they organized the gods was uh, more directly power-based. There was always one god, it was generally called the God Most High, who both kept the basic order in the universe, was the front line, as it were, against the chaos, and also kept the other gods in line. So it changed over time. Zeus is kind of the go-to guy in Greece, but in Mesopotamia, depending on who was winning battles, the God Most High changed. And either they didn't really see this as a problem or they sort of retroactively were like, oh no, he was always the God Most High. I don't know if people believed that or they thought it was metaphorically true or what, but that's kind of their take on it. There was also a tendency toward consolidation. So the God Most High might pick up jobs and attributes from lower gods to such an extent that those lower gods just kind of disappear and their attributes and jobs become aspects of the main god. This happened with Marduk in Mesopotamia, with Amun-Ra in Egypt. So these gods, they're switching because these different, you know, different cities, uh, we see this most clearly like in Mesopotamia, right? Different cities in that area sort of gain ascendancy, right? So this city worships Marduk. So Marduk is sort of the head guy. And when a different city sort of that has a different sort of main God, that God sort of has ascendancy. So could you talk about how the attachment of a God to a city sort of affected, um, 
you know, how they were, how they were thinking about reality. Like how, how are the gods conquering each other? How is that all working out? Generally speaking, they understood the earth to have an upper level and a lower level. The gods inhabited this, this, we could call it upper story and lower story. This is a common metaphor around here. They inhabit that, we inhabit the lower story. And your rule of thumb is as above, so below. So if Athena and Poseidon are hashing it out, you get things like the Trojan War. Because whatever they're doing, their people are also doing. And whoever wins above wins below. So when Athens is on the ascendancy, Athena's doing great. Um, And then things can turn around. Also, cities tended to believe that they had the aspects of their gods. So Athens, great in war and wisdom. Why? Athena's their patron deity. The patron deity of a city would also want to have representatives in that city. Sometimes these representatives were priests. Sometimes these representatives were not people at all. They were statues or, uh, in the case of Athena, something like an owl. Sometimes they were very specific people who were uh, called sons of that god, and they acted for the gods. They ruled with their authority. I mentioned earlier that a number of the gods most high in Egypt, Osiris, Horus, Amun-Ra, Amun, I think, were all also pharaohs. They were also either gods or sons of God, sons of the God. All the pharaohs were considered to be sons of the God. They ruled in the place of the God and with the authority of the God. The priests often made up a bunch of the administrative and governmental posts, and they served the gods and made sure that other people served the gods. There were also these non-personal tokens of the gods, which is to say things like statues, um, either big ones in the city square or little ones that you could have uh, in your house. And these were thought to be representative of the god in the world and perhaps a locus of that god's power. So in a number of cultures, there was a tradition of handling or rubbing or anointing or doing something physical with your little token of your god. And that was supposed to get the god's attention and also clear the channel for the power of that god to come and like do whatever you needed them to do right there in your little house. So I think this is sort of an appropriate place to sort of to sort of shift gears and talk about ancient Judaism, because this is one of the places where uh, ancient Judaism is, you know, it's in it's within the context of these polytheistic religions, but it's it's sort of some of its core beliefs are really different. For instance, this idea that a, a, a god is local is one of the things that the prophets are very adamant that is not true of uh, the God of the Old Testament, right? That that when Yahweh's temple is going to be destroyed, you know, Ezekiel and Isaiah are very much like, don't you be thinking that he's not in control because this is going down, right? Any other God, their city gets sacked. You're like, oh, I guess that God's not important anymore. <laughs> Judaism sort of rejects that as a picture of things. Could you briefly discuss some of the other differences between sort of the polytheistic, what we've discussed in terms of the polytheistic way of seeing the world and the Judaistic way of seeing the world? Sure. One of the reasons that 
the god of Judaism is not a local god is tied into a difference in the understanding of what transcendence is when it comes to God. If you're just transcendent of the physical world, you are still limited to some sort of domain. If you're transcendent in the way the God of the Bible is transcendent, it's an entirely different picture. Rather than being part of the cosmos or part of the world, but with a lot of power, God presents himself in the Bible as not being a part of the world at all, as being a creator of the world and in no way tied to it, such that for polytheists, if the world were destroyed, the gods would go with it. For the ancient Judaism, the world depends on God, and God in no way depends on the world for his existence, and that's how he's transcendent. I like the point about the prophets. It's especially uh, apropos to bring up their perspective when they're in captivity and in exile, because from a polytheistic perspective, if your country has been overrun by a foreign power and you've been hauled off to their country, the only reasonable thing to do is to take up their God because he clearly is taking care of them and is more powerful than yours. But time and time again, the Jews are told, trust God even in exile, and they do, and you know, mixed results, but you get stories like the ones in Daniel about how God is giving them signs that he really is still in control of what's going on. One reason for this is that what God is up to, what he reveals as a sort of narrative arc in the Bible, is just really different than what the gods in ancient polytheism were up to. I know you talked about this the other week with Gilgamesh, but the gods of Greek and Mesopotamian and Egyptian mythology, they are driven by all of the same emotions and desires and vices that humans are driven by. And they desire things like power and fame, and they will do really crummy things to get those things. But the God of the Bible is not interested in those things. He has a different agenda when it comes to the world. And I think it's really clear some of the aspects of that agenda as you look through the Old Testament. As you said, he's introducing himself to mankind in the context of polytheism, and he does this slowly. So, you know, he shows up with Adam and Eve. What do you have? You have rebellion in the human heart. What is God's response? Mercy and the promise of redemption. Really, really basic. Doesn't even touch on like, I'm the only God or anything like that. You get Noah, same basic story plus a promise at the end. And then you get Abraham. And there's a reason he's a big deal. God sets up some major promises to him. One thing interesting about him is that he grew up in Ur, which is in Mesopotamia. And then his father and their whole clan was going to move to Canaan. And they got as far as Haram, which I think is a city in northern northern Mesopotamia, southern um, Turkey. And they, they just didn't make it to Canaan. They hung out there. But both Ur and Haram were polytheistic cultures. So Abraham spends all of his growing up, first chunk of his adult life, enmeshed in two different polytheistic cultures. And then God says, hey, I'm going to take you to this land. It'll be yours. Does he say, I'm the only God? Not in so many words, right? He just says, I'm going to make you some promises. Follow me. And Abram does. We get to Moses. 
what's going on with Moses? I'm skipping a huge chunk of the timeline, you know, but they're in Egypt, another polytheistic culture. They've been slaves for 400 years. We get another promise, another follow me call. They gripe and complain about it, but they do, right? God seems to be trying to communicate to this people. God is communicating to these people slowly over time, various things about himself and about what is important to him. This mercy, redemption, the fact that he takes care of his people regardless of their ability to do anything for him, which is a stark contrast with the worship of the polytheistic gods where you really needed to make sure you served and fed your gods so he was nice and strong and could go in and knock out the other gods. In this case, it just didn't apply. Why Why did the Israelites do sacrifices? Well, to confess sin and to uh, give thanks. There were lots of thank offerings. Those are the basic offerings they did. Nothing about making sure your God was strong or that he was pleased with you in some sort of uh, aesthetic way. It's a very, very different approach. One of the striking things about the imagery and uh, iconography that the Old Testament uses is it's constantly hearkening back to the sort of typical pictures of uh, the Egyptian gods or like a Marduk or a Baal, right? This idea of sort of founding the world in the midst of chaos, which is the story of the Enuma Elish, is a story that comes up again and again. And if you look at Egyptian uh, statues and stuff like that, you know, there are critters with animal heads and and uh, wings and all of that sort of stuff. And so that is the context in which the God of the Old Testament is sort of presenting his project. It's like, I'm the one who's really founding the world. I'm the one who really sort of takes care of this stuff. There, there's this sort of claim being made by these other gods, but ultimately the God of the Old Testament is the one who's sort of carry, who's actually the one sort of doing all those things. So there, there's a way that the Old Test, the, the claim of the Old Testament is that this one God is sort of encompassing everything that all the other gods can do. I suppose the last thing we should talk about with regard to Judaism is how then individuals were supposed to relate to that God. Yes, that point is well made. God, the God of the Bible, does encompass all of the realms and all of the domains of all of the gods of polytheism. And he makes that point often. In fact, early on, he tells Moses, look, your forefathers knew me as the God Most High. Uh, El Shaddai, I think is what it is, is the God most high. But you need to know me by a new name, Yahweh, which is the one who is. I'm a different kind of being than those gods that you're thinking about. I'm not the God who orders the other gods. I'm the God who actually is. There's different ways of understanding that. But the basic point being, it's not that he keeps the universe uh, corralled by corralling the other gods. And it's not that he keeps chaos at bay by somehow imposing order on it. In ancient Judaism, the basic component or the basic characteristic of the world is cosmos, is order, not chaos. Chaos, after a fashion, is an illusion. It's just complexity and our inability to understand what God is doing. Order is actually 
the basis of all things because it is made by an ordered mind, a rational mind, a personal mind, which is to say the mind of God. You mentioned some of the iconography, the symbolism, the wings on the statues in Egypt, like you have wings in the temple. I think that point especially is well taken because religious language and symbolism were, if not universally the same, universally understood by ancient uh, by the ancient civilizations. When God was revealing his nature to people, he used that language, that set of imagery, that iconography, if you will. So he used God Most High when he was talking about himself because people knew what that meant. He used pictures and architecture. The architecture of the temple, for example, was basically standard architecture for the temples of the time. He just made little tweaks. So instead of having a statue of him in the Holy of Holies, he had the Ark of the Covenant, which had things like the Rod of Aaron, life from death, because it bloomed, if you remember. He had the, the Ten Commandments, the moral law. He had manna, God provides, sort of a symbolic representation of his nature and his values there to be present in the Holy of Holies. So he was using all of the same language and symbolism as a polytheist, but he made changes when he was communicating with the Jews or with the Israelites in order to tell them something important about how he was not like those polytheistic gods. He was something different. One of the ways this comes out is that starting with David, we have a whole line of kings of Israel who were sons of God, sons of God represented God's rule and authority on earth, that these particular people, David and his children and his grandchildren, were not very much like God and didn't act like God would want them to half the time. But this made a sort of placeholder for a promised son of God, a Messiah, who would be the real son of God, who would really be God on earth, who would represent his power and his authority and basically be him for people. And that, of course, Christians now take that to be Jesus. So even there, he's using language from the ancient world, religious language and symbols, concepts, and transmuting it for his own purposes. Naomi, obviously this is a really big topic. We are just scratching the surface between sort of ancient polytheism and the Old Testament. Hopefully we've given folks a lot to think about. Um, if any of you listening have any thoughts about uh, this, these ideas about uh, ancient polytheism, about, you know, how uh, they differ from uh, Judaism and so on, you can email us at podcast at gutenberg.edu. And for today, thank you for talking with us about these ideas, Naomi. My pleasure. And uh, that's it for us here at the Gutenberg Podcast. So join us again next time for more about the great ideas that have shaped Western civilization. <laughs> <laughs>